Welcome to Hot Flashes and Cool Topics, the podcast for women in midlife and beyond. At Hot Flashes and Cool Topics, we talk about anything and everything to do with midlife. My name is Colleen. My name is Bridget. And today we are talking to Dr. Lisa Larkin. You may remember Dr. Larkin. She's been on the show before. She is one of our favorite experts in menopause. She's a board-certified internist. She was trained at Yale and University of Chicago, and she's the founder and CEO of Miss Medicine. And we have been hosting a six-month series on the Revel platform. And if you haven't heard of the Revel platform, you need to, because it's an online and in-person community. You can go to hellorevel.com. They have tons of groups there that you can join about things that if you're a woman over 40, you might like to be involved in, whether it's movies or it's cooking or it's traveling or meetups and meetups. Right. We just started the Nashville Revelers. So if you are a listener in the Nashville era, we are having our first in-person event, January 22nd. Email us at hotflashescooltopics at gmail.com for more information. Having said that, we we recently did a revel with Dr. Larkin on service surgical menopause and hormone replacement therapy. And when I say Bridget and I just sat back and listened to her in awe, she is so incredibly knowledgeable on both subjects. Right. And and it's so great on the Revel platform because if you join in on one of the talks, you can put in the chat if you have a question. So you have this expert right there that can answer your questions. And it is fantastic. Neither Colleen nor I have had to have surgical, um, we have not experienced that, but there are so many people that have. And so many people who are very young when they experience it, when they have to go through something, a lot of younger people have had to have a hysterectomy or if you're older. So it really was fascinating to me the different ways, the different types of hysterectomies and surgical menopause that happen. I was so unaware of this because it just, I haven't had to go through it personally, but just finding out what other women have to go through and what options are out there for them when they have to go through this. She's really Mm -hmm. clear on if you are a 42-year-old woman who's been placed into menopause due to a surgical procedure or cancer or some other independent form versus a 52-year-old woman who is naturally going through menopause. She talks about each one and how they're different and the process that's different and what she would then recommend yes. for a woman suffering from menopausal symptoms that's 42 and going through surgical menopause versus a 52-year-old woman who is going through a natural state of menopause. It's such an interesting conversation. I don't know how one person can know that much. I, I mean, know. Just, it's <laughs> really no. Well, she's she has thirty years experience, right. which to me, she doesn't look or appear that she could possibly have thirty years of period of experience because yes. she does not look that age. But um, it is amazing, and she is a breast cancer survivor. So there, you've got that other layer on there for people who have gone through a cancer treatment. Not only from being in her profession, but she knows it personally as well. So what a great resource that we have. We are going to let her start the conversation. But before we do that, we just hope everybody is enjoying their holidays and you're getting all your shopping done 
And we had a great 12 days of holiday giveaways, but yes. we also want to let people know, cause I'm sure they're thinking Bridget is from Kentucky and the yes. tornadoes that have been absolutely hard. We were very yeah. lucky in Nashville. We, our location did not get hurt, but right. we, we're glad to say, and Bridget can yes. speak more on that, that her family is. Okay. Well, I, I took off for Florida, um, Friday evening, like just right before the tornadoes hit. And the next day I opened up, we have a family group me chat and just to photos up. But everybody in my family is fine. Thank goodness. No one was hurt. No, I there wasn't any damage, but photos of my family, you know, hiding, you know, in their spots, in their safe spots. Uh, my niece with four children, all in her bathroom, in the oh. bathtub, just, you know, three or four in the morning. The oldest is 11. The youngest is four. Um, other nieces, one of my sisters was flying in from Denver and just circling the airport for 40 minutes because they couldn't land. Um, and just, it's just horrible. Bowling Green, Kentucky, my son went to college there. And it's just a mess. It's terrifying. I have classmates that have shared photos. Luckily, their children are fine. But uh, one of my classmates from high school, his daughter's whole home, just where she lived, um, just the damage around there. She is safe. Thank God she's safe. But it, it, it's horrible. Um, I can remember as a child, how bad tornadoes were. I remember the 1974 tornado. I was really, you know, I vaguely remember it, but I think this is about the worst one since then. And Mayfield, Kentucky. Oh yeah. It's just awful. Um, that whole area. It's just yeah, our terrible. thoughts are with everybody who is going through this because it's absolutely devastating. And it is, it, it was such a huge, I know my husband where he works, one of their businesses in Arkansas was hit and one of the employees passed away. Shielding another employee. Oh my gosh. Yes. Shielding another employee. And it's just completely devastating to see this. Completely. It really is. So mm -hmm. our, like, like I said before, our thoughts are with everybody in uh, really six states, not just Kentucky. Yeah. Kentucky seemed to get hit the worst. The worst. So yes. we are going to move on and let Dr. Larkin take over this conversation to talk about surgical menopause and hormone replacement therapy. Enjoy the conversation, guys. Welcome, Dr. Larkin. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. We appreciate it. So one of the things we hear a lot from our listeners and from women in the midlife range is what is surgical menopause and when does it become a concern? What are the kind of effects of it? Can you explain what surgical menopause means? So surgical menopause simply is taking out the ovaries with surgery. Um, and, you know, when women have a hysterectomy for one of varying reasons, there's the option to just take the uterus out or to take the uterus and the ovaries out. And depending on the age of the a woman who's undergoing the hysterectomy, that varies. Um, and there's other reasons that a gynecologist may or may not take out the ovaries at the time of a hysterectomy. Um, in the past, uh, the ovaries were pretty typically taken out regardless of the woman's age. And we've realized that early or premature menopause has a lot of unintended consequences. And so guidelines now are really to have an informed shared decision-making about whether or not the ovaries should be taken out or need to be taken out at the time of a hysterectomy. What are the advantages of keeping the ovaries? Right. So what we have absolutely learned is that premature or early menopause, and let me define that for you. So, um, 
The natural age of menopause in the United States is 51.4 years, and that's a bell-shaped curve. So certainly women in their late 40s to mid-50s will go through natural menopause, and that's when the ovaries stop producing estrogen and progesterone, and there's big hormonal changes, right? So this is the complete end of fertility. Premature menopause is uh, defined as menopause uh, below the age of 40, and early menopause is defined is menopause below the age of 45. And so women um, can have early or premature menopause for many reasons, but surgical menopause is one of them. Certainly chemotherapy-induced menopause for, say, early breast cancer treatment or treatment of ovarian cancer is another reason for um, menopause. It can be chemotherapy or surgically related. And what we know is that the unintended consequences, and I say this to patients day in and day out, we think about the benefits of estrogen. Estrogen really gotten a bad rap in that you hear lots of negative things about estrogen. But actually, estrogen is very beneficial when it comes to bone, brain, and heart health, never mind sexual function. And so what we know is that women that have premature or early menopause, largely related to surgery or chemotherapy, have earlier and a higher risk of cardiovascular disease, have earlier rates of osteoporosis, osteopenia and osteoporosis, and have earlier cognitive decline. Sexual dysfunction is um, disrupted with menopause regardless of the age. And in women who have surgical menopause or chemotherapy-induced menopause, because the menopause is very sudden, their symptoms tend to be much more severe than women who gradually transition through menopause. So, um, again, in my practice, we really think very carefully, or I talk through very carefully with women, um, the pros and cons of having early surgical menopause. And if they have surgical menopause, I can tell you um, if there's specific reasons that they need. Now, we can talk about cancer and whether or not you would give hormone therapy back. But for example, there are women who are BRCA1 and BRCA2, the, the hereditary cancer mutation carriers that put them at higher risk for breast and ovarian cancer. Those women often go have prophylactic oophorectomy or have their ovaries removed to reduce their risk of ovarian cancer. And what we know is that women who, after they're done childbearing, so sometimes sometime between age 35 and 40, when they have their ovaries out, they need to be put on hormone therapy until the natural age of menopause again because of all of those unintended consequences. And what we know is that, you know, there's um, some... Um, some women who don't get appropriately treated after they have, uh, you know, surgical menopause in the younger years. And so really it's, I, I'm on a, uh, one of the things that I'm very passionate about is really appropriate education of women to make sure they're well-informed and can make informed decisions about hormone therapy or no hormone therapy. With younger women who have to have their ovaries removed, is there anything that they can start taking that can help with the transition into early menopause? You mean if they have their their ovaries removed surgically? And yes. so say they're 42 and have surgical menopause. No, I mean, it's uh, there's nothing really you can do. I mean, the ovaries are the um, organ that produces, obviously, follicles and eggs so that you can have babies and have children, um, but produces the hormones that are so important um, that are responsible when you're not pregnant for having normal menstrual cycles. But it's the estrogen that's really beneficial for all of the other tissues that we talked about. And so really, the standard is to take 
hormone therapy. And we can talk about different types of hormone therapy, but in a 42-year-old who's had surgical menopause, and again, there's reasons that we would not give hormone therapy back. There's, again, it's, it's not, it's never one size fits all in medicine, but the vast majority of women who undergo surgical menopause say for heavy menstrual bleeding related to fibroids. And when they go in, they take out her uterus and her ovaries at 42. That woman absolutely should be on hormone therapy until the average age of menopause. And then the discussion changes, but until age 51. When we're talking about hormone replacement therapy, it scares so many women when they hear taking hormone replacement therapy because of the reports from the early 2000s from just the bad news that travels. Can you talk a little bit about what hormone replacement therapy is and the options that are available for women? Right. So I want to start again by saying that it's a very different discussion when you have a 52-year-old woman who's having hot flash symptoms to discuss the pros and cons of hormone therapy compared to a 42-year-old woman who's just had her ovaries out. So a 42-year-old woman who's had her ovaries out, and again, there's reasons that we would not give hormone therapy, such as breast cancer, right? So if that 42-year-old woman has had breast cancer that's been hormone receptor positive breast cancer, and she's now been treated with surgery, chemotherapy, um, and is now menopausal because of the chemotherapy or because she had her ovaries taken out and is on anti-estrogen therapy as part of her adjuvant therapy for her breast cancer, we would not give that 42-year-old woman Um, hormone therapy, but a 42 year old woman who had her uterus and ovaries removed, uh, you know, surgical menopause for bleeding and a fibroid uterus, that woman should get hormone therapy. And that woman is completely different than the woman that was studied in the women's health initiative, where you talked about in 2002, where all of the data came out and it was this huge change in how we thought about hormone therapy. The problem with the women's health initiative. And first of all, when I say problem, it was a really, really good study. It was a placebo controlled double blind study, meaning we were really looking at at the impact of hormone therapy on women. And we were really mostly interested in cardiovascular disease. Now, when the trial was originally enrolling patients, we were not looking at the average 52-year-old menopausal woman with symptoms. We were looking at all women. And we were looking at all women with all risk factors for all diseases. And in fact, the average age in that trial was 65 years old. And we had many older women in the trial. So it was about a third, a third, a third. And so the data when looked at as in in entirety, and again, it was a large study, showed in the estrogen and progesterone arm that there was an increased risk of heart, heart attack, breast cancer, and clotting, stroke, stroke and DVT and PE. The problem with the study is that it enrolled a lot of older women and a lot of older women with a lot of cardiovascular risk factors. And that we know that a woman who's been postmenopausal for 15 or 20 years is a very different woman than the woman who is just transitioning through menopause at age 50, 51, 52. What's different about those women? So if you are a woman who's 65, 67, 70, 72, and you have not been on hormone therapy, we can almost guarantee that you have had that vascular aging to some degree, right? You've started to form plaque in your arteries, and it depends on family history and hypertension and diabetes 
diabetes and whether or not you smoke, how much you have that. But we know that you've started to have vascular aging in all of your tissues, your heart and your brain, for example. And so what we've now learned is that hormone therapy, when given to women with vascular disease, older women, 60s, 70s, has a completely different risk benefit profile than giving hormones to someone who's young right at the right at the time of menopause for symptoms. And actually, as we've continued to analyze and follow the women from the Women's Health Initiative data, and we've looked at the women, the younger cohort of women, so these are women within 10 years of menopause, the 50 to 60-year-olds, the data looks completely different. And the benefits clearly outweigh the risks in the vast majority of women. Again, it has to be individualized, but the vast majority of women close to menopause benefit more from hormones that are at risk. Now, what do we really, what do women worry about? So a 50, 51-year-old woman close to menopause who's having, or at menopause transition, who's having hot flashes, who comes to see me, her biggest risk at that age is breast cancer or or what she's worried about is breast cancer, right? So the messaging is out there. Oh my God. And I have women come in all the time and say to me, well, I'm miserable with hot flashes. I feel terrible. I'm not sleeping. Um, I'm having palpitations. I've gained weight. I, I feel I'm depressed. I'm anxious. I feel terrible, but I'll never take that hormone therapy because hormones are going to give me breast cancer. And this is really where the misinformation is out there. So what I start the conversation and what the data really shows, well, first of all, I start by saying, look, all women are at risk of developing breast cancer. If you have breasts, I'm a breast cancer survivor, um, seven years now. Um, but I was 49 at the time of diagnosis and, you know, I had dense breasts and I know family history, you know, again, the majority of women who develop breast cancer don't have a family history. And so you have to kind of talk to a woman about her. And actually I do a lot of modeling with calculators to help a woman understand her five-year, 10-year and lifetime risk of developing breast cancer because it's very different. So one of the problems with talking about hormone therapy and breast cancer risk is that women and all of you on this call, all of you have a different risk of developing breast cancer that is um, a combined, it has a, many different things have to be taken into consideration. So it's your family history for sure. And in this modeling that we do, we talk, take a three generation family history to, to look at that, but it's also your reproductive factors. When you had puberty, when you had your first child, what your age of menopause was, um, uh, whether or not, uh, what your breast density is, what your weight is. Um, and all of those things taken together can help us model what a woman's individual risk is. And one of the reasons that I do this in practice with every woman is because we really do know we are failing to identify the women who are really high risk and who don't know they're at high risk, right? So the guidelines really say that if your lifetime risk is above 20%, Um, And women don't know that. I bet none of you on this call really know what your lifetime um, risk of developing breast cancer is because this information just doesn't get out there. There are very few physicians that actually do this modeling for women. But we know we need to be very careful with you and talking about ways to lower your breast cancer risk. But let me go back to the the hormone therapy discussion. So first, for me, in a 50-year-old woman who comes in who's having menopause, 
symptoms and hot flashes and who, who were going to talk about having taking hormone therapy, the first thing I do is calculate breast cancer risk. I then look at her risk of cardiovascular disease, right? So lipid smoking, family history to try to identify that. And I really am trying again to, to identify those women who we should be doing something else with. But in the average woman at 51, whose average risk of developing breast cancer, who has no real flags for early or unusual cardiovascular disease, that woman is a really good risk for hormone therapy uh, to, to take, to control symptoms. It's the most effective thing. And what do I tell her about that breast cancer risk? So how do I counsel her? So this is what the data shows from the WHI, which is if I have 100 women and I follow women from age 50 to 60, they become menopausal and they don't take hormone therapy, three women will develop breast cancer. Okay. That's not because of hormone therapy. That's because women who have breasts develop breast cancer. So that's the average, right? If we look at that, if I give a hundred women hormone therapy and specifically the hormone therapy that was used in the women's health initiative, and I give it to her for 10 years and I, fo I follow these hundred women now from 50 to 60 again, four women will develop breast cancer. So it's one additional case of breast cancer in 1,000 patient years, but it's three cases of breast cancer to four. And so when the data came out from the WHI, it was all over the news that said, if you take hormone therapy, you have a 25% increased risk of developing breast cancer. Well, that is true because going from three to four women is a 25% increase. When women heard that, they heard, oh my gosh, if I take hormone therapy, I now have a one in four chance of developing breast cancer, which is not what the study showed. And why that's important to talk to women all the time about is because that increase in going from three to four, which is that 20 or 25% increased risk of breast cancer, is lower than the risk of obesity or being overweight and your risk of breast cancer. So when I do this modeling for women, I play around with the model and show them what gaining 20 pounds, gaining 40 pounds, losing 20 pounds actually does to their breast cancer risk. And weight has a huge impact on risk of developing breast cancer. In fact, we now know that in the United States, when we have a much higher rate of breast cancer than in other countries, that if we could get all women to have ideal lifestyle, exercise, mostly a plant-based diet, maintaining ideal body weight, and limiting alcohol, that we could pre prevent 33% of breast cancer cases in the United States, right? Or 77,000 cases of breast cancer. And that's the impact of lifestyle on breast cancer risk, not this whole thing about hormone therapy, right? So typically for me, when I'm seeing a 50-year-old patient, one of the important things I'm talking to her about is lifestyle. What's she eating? How much exercise is she getting? We're talking about if she has a normal body mass index, but also alcohol. That's the other thing, right? So I have a lot of patients who are really happy to be empty nesters right around age 50, right when they're going through menopause and they're socializing more. They are going out to dinner more. Well, maybe not with COVID so much, but right, drinking more alcohol than they used to. And that's the other thing. So when women come in and they're so fearful of taking hormones, hormone therapy because of maybe that small increased incremental increase in risk in their breast cancer risk, I really have to talk to them about alcohol intake because if they're having wine every single day, one or two glasses, 
their risk from the alcohol of developing breast cancer is higher than the hormone therapy, right? So you have to kind of put it in perspective. The other big thing that really got very little talked about from the Women's Health Initiative is the reduction in diabetes risk with hormone therapy. And that's another huge positive thing. And the magnitude of that benefit is really large. So a lot of information, let me go back to our 52-year-old patient. So she's at average risk for heart disease, average risk for breast cancer. She's having terrible hot flashes, not sleeping, her mood is terrible. She hasn't had any unusual clotting reason or any any reason that I can't give her hormone therapy. What I tell her is, your biggest risk of having breast cancer is being female and having breasts. Not that I'm going to give you this hormone therapy. We have to talk about the potential small incremental increase in risk with time. And again, we'll talk about different formulations that we're using now and different dosing, but we really need to pay attention to your lifestyle risk. And what I can tell you from the data is that in terms of prevention of diabetes, prevention of heart disease, prevention of osteoporosis and prevention of dementia and preservation of sexual function, you have all this benefit over here with hormone therapy. And maybe this very small additional incremental risk in breast cancer, but it's really small. And so, you know, I really try to put it in perspective. Now, the other thing about what I do with hormone therapy, and so this woman, I would start on hormone therapy, this this theoretical 52-year-old woman, right, that I've just told you about. So what hormone therapy do I use? Well, the very interesting data from the Women's Health Initiative, and again, this didn't get a lot of press, is the first press came out when women were taking PremPro, a very specific product, which is Premarin, which is a mixture of estrogens that comes from pregnant horses, mares. This is a collection of estrogens, and it's not the bioidentical estrogen that you hear all the press about now, right? We hear from so many women in our community that they can't sleep or focus. They are quietly struggling with hot flashes, fatigue, or vaginal dryness, but they're afraid to take any estrogen-based products. We hear you and we get it. We really do. One of our podcast missions is to find actual options and solutions for menopause that work. That's why we are so excited to share Kendra. Kendra's line of estrogen-free products target and relieve the most disruptive menopausal symptoms. And when we say estrogen-free, we mean 0% estradiol or progesterone. No more reason to worry. Their line of daily supplements offers relief for hot flashes, brain fog, mood swings, and more. And their best-selling daily vaginal lotion offers support for your most intimate areas. Find all of Kendra's amazing products and community online at www.rkendra.com. Plus, use code COOLTOPICS20 for 20% off. Really interesting is in the second arm of the WHI where it was Premarin only. So these are women that had had a hysterectomy, so didn't need to take the progestin with the estrogen. These women actually had a reduction in breast cancer risk. That was really not talked about very much. And the difference between the two arms of the study led those of us who were in the space to say, wow, it must mean that the progestin is part of the problem. And the progestin in PremPro is a synthetic progestin. And again, back to the now all of the discussions since the WHI about use of bioidentical hormones. 
Okay. The other thing that we've learned since the WHI is that delivery of estrogen. So taking it orally versus putting a patch or using a gel is also very different in terms of risk and benefit. And I will tell you that in my practice, I largely use transdermal patches or gels with women because by giving it that way, you avoid the liver. So you avoid something called first pass hepatic metabolism. And it has all kinds of um, beneficial effects in terms of not increasing clotting factors. So we know that the risk of clotting thrombosis and stroke with patch estrogen is much better than with oral estrogen. And the other thing is we know that it doesn't impact a protein called sex hormone binding globulin. So many women and many of you may have been on oral contraceptives at some point in your life. And you may remember that your libido wasn't quite as good when you were on oral contraceptives. And again, we know that that's true with postmenopausal hormone therapy is that we can preserve, better preserve, although we haven't gotten to the sexual function discussion yet, um, better preserve uh, sexual function if we give the hormones across the skin. Now, there are some people that don't like to use patches, and there are some people who, um, you know, are at higher risk of breast cancer where I, and have had their uterus removed, where we can talk about potentially the benefit of Premarin alone um, for hormone therapy. But again, probably 90% of my patients in my practice, I'm doing patch estrogen, estradiol, the bioidentical estrogen, and I'm using oral progesterone, the bioidentical progesterone, which also appears to have lower risk in terms of all the things that we talked about than the synthetic progestins. So I could go on and on and on. But I know. I, I just, I, I, that was so much, I mean, that was such helpful information. And we actually have a question from someone who said they've been on bioidentical progesterone and estradiol from ages 49 to 45 to 69. And a new doctor recommended that she's been on it for too long. Do you feel that that is too long to be on the bioidentical progesterone? No, I, so, so, um, and let me just ask that individual, maybe she can put it, I'm going to presume that you are not getting pellets. Um, so, uh, pellets that you're actually getting the regimen that I'm kind of talking about the patch or the gel and oral progesterone. So here's what I would tell you. There is absolutely no guideline on when to stop hormone therapy. And I would not tell this patient. So she's what you said, 69, 69 or, yes, 69. Mm-hmm. Yes. 45 69. to 60. Okay. So 69 is getting up there, um, in terms of hormone therapy. Um, now again, there's no absolute mandate to stop at 69, but it would really require me sitting down. And again, I do this every year with patients recalculating risk. So what do we know happens for risk of women as they get older, right? Women die of heart disease and stroke. They die of cardiovascular disease. And so women, as they get older, what we start to worry about And even if you do the calculation, it's called an ASCVD risk score to help someone understand, just like with breast cancer, we were talking about what their 10-year and lifetime risk of developing heart disease is. Even if their cholesterol and their blood pressure doesn't change, just based on age, women start to have very substantial risk of developing heart disease, right? So as a 69-year-old, the risk of developing, you know, your 10-year and lifetime risk of developing heart disease is vastly higher than it was when you were 45 when you started on the bioidentical hormones. And so at that point, the shit, it starts to shift a little bit about the benefit versus the risk, right? Because you remember I told you that in the Women's Health Initiative data, 
it, we know that it was the women who had some degree of vascular disease already where the hormones then became risky, right? So certainly what we know is that women in their late 70s and 80s, the big thing we see in practice, and I unfortunately see it too often, is women who have strokes, right? And so certainly we don't want to be doing anything to increase a woman's risk of stroke. So in you, as a 69-year-old, what I would be doing is evaluating your cardiovascular and stroke risk. Really would want to understand what your blood pressure is, what your lipids are. I often do a test called a coronary calcium score to try to give me another sense of what um, your vascular status is. That's another piece that I put into weighing in this balance of whether or not you can stay on hormones or not. And then um, if really it looks like your cardiovascular risk is not elevated and you really do still want to stay on hormones because you have hot flashes when you stop or because sexual function is, is very important to you and is still preserved. Or maybe you have osteopenia that, you know, you have a family history of osteoporosis and the hormones have been very effective for you. At the very least, what I would make sure is that you're using transdermal because again, the stroke risk is lower and I would be titrating down on the dose. But what I typically say to patients, so if we go back to the 52-year-old when I'm starting her on hormones, is we say we'll have a discussion every year about whether or not we should continue or not continue. And, um, you know, by 65, I'm really talking to most women about getting off. And I don't have a gun against their head. At 70, I'm really pushing them. I have um, a small percentage of people who are 70 and a small number of patients who are still on hormone therapy. But certainly again, I, you know, I wouldn't abruptly stop you. Um, I would gradually wean you down over time. And again, depending on your cardiovascular risk, um, your individual risks, I would discuss what to do. I think one of the questions we have also, and I think it's a common question is, would hormone therapy consist of estrogen only or a cocktail of estrogen and progesterone? I think a lot of women are confused as to what hormone therapy includes. Can you talk a little more in yeah, general? And that's, that's a really good question. Really hormone therapy, when we're talking about menopausal hormone therapy is traditionally estrogen and progesterone. Now, in women who don't have a uterus, who've had a hysterectomy, it's estrogen alone. We don't need to give those women progesterone anymore. Now, I will tell you that there's a lot of um, uh, integrative medicine, functional medicine physicians who are giving, using, suggesting progesterone cream and progesterone tablets, even for symptom management or for sleep. Um, you know, the oral progesterone uh, can be helpful for some women for sleep, but the real reason that we, and from a reproductive standpoint, women need progestins is to keep the uterine lining thin, right? So that's the hormone that causes the uterine lining to shed. If you don't have your uterus anymore, you don't need the progesterone. And for me personally, because of the data we just talked about, right, the arm in the Women's Health Initiative where you were taking the progestin had the higher risk of breast cancer, whereas the arm without the progestin had lower risk of breast cancer. So we think that there's an issue with the progestin as well. So in my, from my perspective, I don't give women with a uterus progesterone. I just give them estradiol. Now, the other hormone that comes up all the time in women is testosterone. And, you know, is that part of hormone replacement therapy? And I will tell you, in our space now, we really have gotten away from hormone replacement therapy as the term, and we just call it 
MHT, which is menopausal hormone therapy. And that's because this concept of replacing for all of us goes back to, um, you know, and these with the pellet, people who are doing a lot of pellets and compounded um, bioidentical hormones and talking a lot about this will say, you know, we have to get you back to hormone balance or we have to do replacement. The problem is that's really a misnomer, right? Because menopause is a natural event. Um, and the, the issue really has become, we as a species are one of the few, if not only species who lives for a significant amount of time. Now it's more than a third of our lives for women are spent on average in the postmenopausal state. And that's very different than it used to be. Right. And so now there's longer term consequences of not having those hormones. But remember, it is a normal physiologic transition for the species, right? You're not, you're not uh, producing eggs and you're not fertile anymore. And so the concept of replacement goes back to, can we basically stop aging really is what this is about. So can you give doses and combinations of hormones that help you preserve youthfulness. And that, that was really in the 1970s. That was one of the reasons where hormone therapy was uh, started and launched in a big way. Um, there was a book that was written called feminine forever. And that was when everybody was taking hormones and, and we saw the increase in endometrial cancer at, at that point. And that's a whole, whole nother discussion, but Really, so menopausal hormone therapy is really what we're talking about. And again, we, the guidelines are to treat women who are having symptoms related to menopause. We don't use hormone replacement therapy at this point for disease prevention. We're really, this is really a conversation about women who at the transition who are having symptoms and whether or not they should take estrogen plus progesterone or estrogen only if they don't have a uterus. And the discussion of testosterone is a little bit different. One of the questions we also have is that during perimenopause, when a woman comes in and she hasn't reached the 12 months yet, is there an approved hormone protocol that they should be discussing with their doctors? Because her doctor wants to give her birth control pills. That's right. That's actually, and I was, that's a great question. And let me talk about that. So what's happening in the perimenopause transition is that before the ovaries have finally you know, kick the bucket. Um, they are, your, your fertility is really down. So the quality of the follicles is poor. You're not ovulating every cycle. So cycles become irregular and hormone production from the ovaries becomes very inconsistent. We often call this puberty part two. And what do I mean by that? Which is, you know, you can have spaces between your cycles, you know, so some women will go 45 or 60 days. They can be closer together. Bleeding can be heavier. Bleeding can be light. Some cycles you can have hot flashes right around the period and other cycles you can have breast tenderness. Like women feel, many women feel very unsettled um, because the hormone swings that are happening in the perimenopause are often huge. So women can go in the perimenopause. So in the, in the twenties and thirties, when um, fertility is at the maximum, the ovaries are working very well. Yes, you have hormone swings, but it's within a very narrow range in the perimenopause. I mean, it's all over. We often call it puberty part two because the ovaries are 
just inconsistently producing hormones. And this is why measuring hormones in the perimenopause is just useless because hormone levels will change minute to minute or hour to hour and certainly day to day. And the swings can be be very large. And this is what bothers women. And often they feel terrible then. So you bring up oral contraceptives and oral contraceptives are the mainstay of therapy at this point. And why oral contraceptives and not menopausal hormone therapy that we talked about, right? So what's happening is the difference in um, the amount of hormone we're giving between menopausal hormone therapy and what we give in oral contraceptives is very different, right? So menopausal hormone therapy is not enough. It's very low dose in comparison. It's not enough to make the ovaries quiet. So if you gave what I give a menopausal woman in terms of hormones back, it's not enough to to suppress her ovaries, right? So you're still getting hormones all over the place. The ovaries are still producing more and it doesn't do anything. It doesn't help. The reason that oral contraceptives help is because the way that they work for pregnancy prevention is they quiet the ovaries down. So the ovaries are not producing their own hormones anymore. You're not ovulating anymore. That's what the oral contraceptive regimen does. And if you give oral contraceptives consistently then, right? So you don't have that break, that bleeding that we used to do. So you take the active pills for 21 days and then you, um, you take placebo for seven, you now very easily can run them together. And what advantage does that have? Well, it means that you're getting a fixed dose of hormones that are very consistent every single day. And the ovaries are now quiet. And this can be so beneficial to women in terms of all of their symptoms. And so typically in a woman, again, there's reasons when oral contraceptives might not be the right option or the woman might not be a great candidate for it. But for many women, almost I would say most, the low-dose oral contraceptives are the best option for women to controlling all of these symptoms, right? So sometimes women are anxious. Sometimes they're not sleeping. They're having intermittent hot flashes. They're having bleeding and irregular cycles. All of those things can be fixed in, in many cases with taking continuous oral contraceptives. Um, and they work really, really well. So my approach is often to have a woman on on low-dose oral contraceptives continuously until age 51. And then we reassess, stop, see if she's having symptoms. She'll likely be menopausal at that point. If she then starts having menopausal symptoms, then we talk about menopausal hormone therapy, which is, again, much lower dose. We had one person who was curious. When you say menopausal, are you saying 12 months, no period? Yes. I mean, so, and, and again, that's the real standard, right? But again, there's many people who, like I have women who've had an endometrial ablation in their forties, right? And they're not bleeding at all. They haven't bled in years and years and years. So you can't, you can't use that as the definition of menopause for them. So in those patients, it's often symptoms that they're having, right? So hot flashes, night sweats, and then we can measure hormone levels in that patient. Now, why did I say hormone levels in the perimenopause are not helpful? It's because they can be all over the place. In the postmenopause, estradiol is consistently low and FSH is consistently high. So in a 52-year-old who had an endometrial ablation at age 44 and never bled since 44 because of the ablation, now at 52, she's having hot flashes. If I measure her estradiol and her estradiol is under 20 and her FSH is elevated, I can be confident that she is menopausal. 
We had a question from someone who recently had surgical menopause and is suffering from muscle loss. So is there anything that any options for, to recommend for that? So welcome to menopause. Um, I like to talk about the difference in the way that women and men age. Men age very gradually over their lifetime and they have very different changes in their hormones, right? So testosterone actually starts declining at about age 35 in men and same thing happens in women, right? So it starts this very slow decline. At menopause, women hormonally age very abruptly, and many women feel like the wheels fell off, right? Like things happen very quickly and very abruptly, and they don't feel well. And I can tell you exactly what the person who you're talking about um, or asked the question is that you do. You eat at menopause, you lose lean muscle mass uh, for sure, and you gain body fat. And I I can tell you it happens to 100% of women who transition through menopause. And it's a combination of the loss of estrogen and the lower testosterone levels. So there's a lot of women that I see in my community who, again, at the same time are noticing a decrease in libido, and they're also noticing the loss in muscle mass. And this is when the whole question of testosterone comes up. And should you be on testosterone? Should you take testosterone? Will testosterone help you with libido and preservation of muscle mass? And I can tell you that um, in women who are getting the testosterone pellets at the very, very high dose, um, the initial pellets uh, that they get, they feel great. Um, they do have a little bit of loss of fat and a little bit of gain in lean muscle mass. Their hot flashes get better and their libido is better. And so women initially feel great. The problem with that over time is that um, they kind of acclimatize to the new higher dose. And we end up seeing the long-term side effects of women's testosterone level being pushed too high. So I will tell you the guidelines right now do not support the use of testosterone in women, particularly at doses outside of the physiologic range. And I can tell you, I see women coming in with crazy high testosterone levels all the time. But for women at menopause who are having sexual dysfunction, use of low-dose topical testosterone is an option. But I can tell you that's not perfect in terms of preservation of lean muscle mass and that really the most important thing at midlife, and you're never going to reverse aging completely, but is it's really important to do weight-bearing exercise. And so that's why at midlife, you need to do a combination of cardiovascular exercise and weight-bearing exercise to preserve lean muscle mass. Um, and it's really important. But I can tell you personally, having chemotherapy-induced menopause at age 49, it's, it's the thing that, well, I noticed so many things, but um, it is one of the things that bothers me the most. I mean, I had a weird experience the other day um, traveling where I was trying to put my suitcase in the overhead bin and I was like, God, I feel like an old person. It's like heavy for me. Like it never used to bother me. I could throw it up there. And so, you know, I definitely have lost myself very significant um, upper body strength and it is frustrating. I also wanted to note that we had Dr. Larkin on an episode recently to talk about heart health and pellet therapy and the dangers of pellet therapy. So if you want more information on that, we do have a podcast episode. Someone asked if you have an estradiol cream for vaginal dryness that you would recommend. Oh my gosh. Okay. So this is a really important um, discussion. So here's the statistics for women who go through menopause. 
uh, let's say natural menopause right now, it's, it's higher with surgical menopause, but natural menopause. So 30% of women will roughly sail through it. And they don't know why we keep talking about menopause because they don't really miss a beat. About 30% of women will have mild to moderate symptoms and 30% of women will have very severe hot flashes and night sweats. Now, the majority of women, the worst period of time is those one to two to three to four years, right around the final menstrual period. But 85% of women, their hot flashes will get better in five to seven years after their last menstrual period. And women actually do really feel better. And the women whose hot flashes go away, now their hormones are consistently low. And many women, migraines go away. Many women feel much better because they're not having the hormonal swings. The one thing that happens that many women don't associate with menopause, the one symptom that gets worse with time is the vaginal dryness and the sexual dysfunction. So we know about 80% of women eight years from that final menstrual period are having significant vaginal atrophy, which has now been renamed genitourinary syndrome of menopause. Vaginal dryness, having atrophy of the tissues down there, the tissue thins, you don't lubricate normally. Women are much more prone to recurrent urinary tract infections. But because it happens so late, many women don't realize that that's because of menopause. The other thing we know is that seven, and I will tell you this honestly, only 7% of women are getting treated for vulvovaginal atrophy related to menopause. Almost 100% of women have it after menopause. 7% are getting treated. And why is that? There's lots of reasons. Clinicians aren't educated about how to manage sexual health. Uh, Women and clinicians are uncomfortable talking about it in the office. And then it goes back to this big fear of hormones. Okay, so just like I told you that the Women's Health Initiative data was using a specific type of estrogen and progestin, and it was oral, and it was used in older women, that was systemic hormone therapy, right? And the hormone therapy that I give women by patch and with the progesterone pill is systemic hormone therapy. It means I can measure your blood and see that I've raised your estradiol level. I am. I have to give you enough if I'm treating hot flashes so that it is actually in your bloodstream. But what the FDA has done and what the messaging to women has done is it's really scared women so much about estrogen. And the FDA mandates that even on the vaginal creams that are out there, which is what this question is all about, has the black box warning that says estrogen causes stroke, dementia, heart disease, breast cancer, clotting, you know, and it you look at this and you're like, why would I ever use this cream on my vagina? Never mind, take it orally, right? The problem is, and there is huge bodies of data, 40,000 women from the Nurses Health Study, 40,000 women from the Women's Health Initiative observational arm in women who are using just vaginal estrogen, which dosing is like a drop in the ocean compared to systemic estrogen levels. There's not one signal for increased risk of anything. No breast cancer, no clotting, no stroke, no dementia, no heart disease, no, no anything. And I would tell you in my practice, I, would, I tell all women, there really is essentially almost really no contraindication to using vaginal estrogen cream tablet ring gel for the duration. Now, the one group of women where it becomes maybe controversial is even in breast in breast cancer survivors or at least in the breast cancer survivors who had aggressive disease who were at high risk of having recurrence maybe in those patients and i say maybe truthfully 
I mean, I'm more cautious about doing it, but again, depending on the patient, I can tell you that there really isn't data. The dosing is so different. And so, yes, I use estrogen products for local vaginal therapy to treat sexual dysfunction and recurrent urinary tract infections in my 80-year-old patients. So even though I just told you that my 70-year-old patient I'm trying to get off hormone therapy, that's off systemic hormone therapy. I cannot tell you, I have many patients who I have who have, have tried to resume or wanted to resume sexual activity in their 70s and 80s, and they can use local therapy. And the creams have are, are a little bit more messy than the little um, the the gel caps or the tablets that we can insert in the vagina. They have the added benefit of you can rub them on the introitus, which is really where most of the problem is. So I do use a lot of the creams. Um, but many women find the creams messy, so I will often use the little um, gel inserts or the tablets, or there's a ring that you can leave in intravaginally for 90 days. Um, and all of them are highly effective, safe, beneficial, and you can use them. And I use them all interchangeably. That's awesome. I had no idea about that because you hear with estradiol not to have any in your vaginal creams and you're saying absolutely. Well, so I just uh, and let me just make sure I clarify, which is um, some of the compounding people who are doing compounding hormone centers are using vaginal cream at doses to get systemic levels. They're not just treating systemic therapy, and again, that's a different discussion. So if you're talking about FDA approved vaginal creams for treatment of we call it dyspareunia, painful intercourse, vulvovaginal atrophy, genital urinary syndrome of menopause. That is really low dose. Women can use that indefinitely. And in fact, I had a 90-year-old woman um, who, unfortunately, she just recently passed away, but she came to me after having multiple recurrent urinary tract infections. The only thing I had to have her do was use a finger full of vaginal cream just on the introitus and the distal urethra tip. She never had another UTI. Because I know some of our listeners get frequent UTIs and suffer from... Yes. Especially so if you are a sexually active menopausal woman, not on systemic hormone therapy, and you're having recurrent UTIs, you need to be on vaginal estrogen. That is the mainstay of therapy. Another person asked if... do hormone Does hormone therapy help or hurt uh, if you have osteoporosis? Beneficial. Benefit. Absolutely beneficial. Thank you so much, Dr. Lohan, for your time. I know you're extremely busy and such helpful information. Yeah, I can talk, 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 right? <laughs> no, but you're always it's telling right. us stuff we need to know. So, yeah. and that we don't learn anywhere else. So I kind of, I just appreciate sitting back and, and listening to all of it. Bridget and I both say thank you. And thank you to everybody who is here with your questions. And thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Larkin, for sharing just such great information with us on surgical menopause. So many things that I didn't know about, so many things I'd never considered. And I really hope our listeners got some great information from this. And always, you can go to Ms. Medicine. Um, it's a concierge service that she does run. It does not take insurance, but she really, uh, Dr. Larkin really wants to be able to help patients uh, without just the, the I don't know, the red tape that you have to go right. through if you work for a practice um, and you are, you know, are a company that's making you see a certain amount of patients. So I just am really thankful that doctors like Dr. Larkin have come up with these solutions for women because there's so much we really need. 
Absolutely. And also check out our show notes if you have any questions on this episode, because our show notes really describe everything we talk about, you know, links to her website and things that she talks about. So our, our show notes really have a lot of information as well. Yes. So check that out and make sure you're following us on YouTube. We have a YouTube channel that in 2022, we're going to start doing some really cool things on. So we want to make sure you're subscribed to that hot flashes and cool topics so that you don't miss any of Bridget and I all the time. <laughs> yeah. You can see our faces on that. Right? One. <laughs> How lucky. How lucky, lucky you guys. You. And yes. Uh, Please enjoy your holiday season. We will talk to you next week, which is right before Christmas. I cannot right. believe it's already. It's crazy. Crazy. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So have a great week, guys. We'll talk to you soon. Bye. Bye.